0: hitting medical truth
1: cutting through conflict and confusion to the understanding you're searching for
0: join dr. Peter McCullough world-renowned medical expert and practicing physician for this edition of the McCullough report your life may depend on it let's get real let's get loud on America out loud talk radio This is the McCullough Report. Uh, Joe Langham from uh, Phoenix, Arizona. Joe's a good guy and he sent me some music. I chose that one. Joe had a little different idea for the McCullough Report, but I like that idea of uh, the fire burns inside our bodies. And it may be how people feel after they've taken one of the COVID-19 vaccines. But I do have some critical updates for you on this show, we have a wonderful backside. Uh, two doctors uh, on an interview, but the first update is that the Novavax vaccine, this is the purified spike protein vaccine in a matrix uh, uh, in, a, in a matrix uh, M protein injection, uh, did come up for U.S. FDA uh, review panel. It did have a fair review panel, and they voted overwhelmingly in favor of Novavax. And the first thing I'd say is that all the data with Novavax uh, is with the legacy variants, the now extinct variants of COVID-19. And the company was quite honest about this in the briefing booklet. I do like the honesty of Novavax. And they simply said, listen, when we tested the product, it was against earlier strains of the virus that are now extinct. We believe this could have an effect against Omicron, but they don't know. Uh, and they were forthright on safety. They had a handful of cases of myocarditis with Novavax, uh, I believe uh, about six cases. There was one case in placebo, which I don't think was a real case. It was someone drinking alcohol very minimal elevation in troponin. The myocarditis with Novavax was impressive. Troponins of, you know, in the thousands, uh, 5,000, 6,000, 7,000. Some needed um, intravenous uh, uh uh, intravenous immunoglobulin. They were treated seriously. There were also cases of uh, deep venous thrombosis and pulmonary embolism that they attributed to the vaccine, fairly in the document they attributed to the vaccine. Now, across the board with respect to safety, it was relatively free of what's called grade four events after getting the vaccine. That would be something severe enough to land somebody in the hospital due to a reaction in the arm. Or an allergic reaction, that was good news. Uh, almost no fever after taking the vaccine, I think that was welcome. The most common side effect was headache. In terms of vaccine efficacy, uh, there were no hospitalizations and deaths in the briefing booklet at all. So it's simply a matter of whether or not one wants to prevent the upper respiratory tract illness that's mild at home. There was a considerable vaccine efficacy in the randomized trials published in the New England Journal of Medicine, the vaccine efficacy was Uh, approximately 90% for that binary endpoint. Uh, But the lack of hospitalizations and deaths, I think really tells you something in the Novavax application because it tells you that in a large number of patients now that COVID-19 is sufficiently mild, even with these older variants, that we just don't have the risk of hospitalization and death and vaccines are not gonna have the ability to make the claim that they can reduce hospitalizations and deaths since they don't have significant numbers of those events in their overall application. So uh, in terms of all randomized subjects, the full analytic data set, uh, Novavax came in with 19,963 patients. The placebo is 9,882. There were 11 deaths in Novavax, six in placebo, uh, that was uh, in the randomized blinded phase, uh, receiving two doses, and then in a crossover period, they allowed people who had gotten placebo to cross over to receive the Novavax uh, uh, product, which is NVX-COV2373. Uh, and uh, there, uh, there accumulated 23 deaths in Novavax and 10 in placebo. The percentages are still uh, similar in both, you remember the placebo is about half the size of the treatment group. So um, my assessment here is that for patients who have never had COVID-19, now in the Novavax program, 93% had negative antibodies against everything. So the, the uh, bottom line is they um, uh, uh, were people who are still susceptible. Novavax provided some protection. They were low-risk patients, no hospitalizations and deaths. There are cases of myocarditis and blood clots fairly attributable to Novavax. So people need to know what they're getting into. The attractive thing about the Novavax vaccine is not a genetic vaccine. So the amount of spike protein that's in the body is controlled in terms of its dose. We still expect that it does last uh, long term, just like they do with the genetic vaccines. But my overall assessment is Novavax is safer than the genetic vaccines. It may be obsolete, but it appears to be safer. Uh, we'll have to see what the regulators do with this and what the company does with it. The company has already mentioned in press briefings that it would modify it to try to cover Omicron and future variants. I think that's fair. Uh, and so out of all the vaccine companies, I think they have put their best foot forward. And I would be more favorable to Novavax than I would of all the vaccines in a high-risk patient if we had no other options for them and uh, we were uh, had excessive concerns regarding even contracting uh, a relatively mild case of COVID. So it would be a rare patient in my view who would get the go-ahead to participate in the emergency use authorized product of Novavax, uh, but certainly would be far favorable to Pfizer, Moderna, Johnson Johnson, or AstraZeneca, and I think more preferable to, um, to the Sinovac vaccine. Can't really opine on the Corbivax vaccine. I haven't reviewed the uh, data on it. It's a more limited vaccine just against the receptor binding domain of the uh, spike protein. So that's an update on uh, Novavax. I wanted to give you a brief update on the monkeypox uh, situation. Remember, there is a current monkeypox outbreak uh, that's been declared uh, by the CDC and the World Health Organization. There are papers now uh, to review on this uh, I wanted to give you uh, a review paper uh, t- titled The Emergence of Monkeypox in West and Central Africa, 1970 to 2017 by Kara Dursky, and this was published in the MMWR, which is the CDC journal, and she points out that um, you know even back in uh, 2017, they had 80 confirmed cases that year as an example. But the average number of cases per year in the Democratic Republic of Congo is from 1970 to 2017 is greater than 1,000 cases per year from the Democratic Republic of Congo. From uh, um, Nigeria, there's approximately uh, uh, 90 cases or 80 cases. From uh, the Republic of Congo, about 80 cases or so. And then from Sudan, uh, 19 cases. And uh, I would just say by further mention, Central African Republic, that uh, here, 12 cases. So it's basically coming out of the Congo Basin. There are a lot of cases. Every year there's cases. So the number of cases this year is uh, really not different than prior years. And uh, it's just that I think there's such an awareness and, and concern regarding any type of infectious disease. And then the next paper to quote is by Faisal Minhaj, and this was published in MMWR June 3rd, 2022. Monkeypox outbreak, nine states in the United States. In May of 2022, they identified 17 cases. These were isolated. Spread was minimal. It's mainly younger men having sex with other men who are actively infected with the pustular uh, lesion. Uh, No deaths. I assume most were just treated with the oral or IV T-pox medication, and um, uh, in fact, they can be treated at home. It was released on CBS yesterday that uh, there was a case in Dallas, another monkeypox case in Dallas. is one last summer. This person is perfectly well being treated at home with T-pox. So monkeypox is out there, uh, young people, particularly men, Having sex with other men, pustular lesions over the, the arms and the, the palms of the hand. Remember, this is not shingles. Shingles never affects the palms of the hands. The monkeypox does, and they're large kind of blister-like lesions. Uh, that's would be outspread. It's not spread in the air. We don't need to wear masks. Uh, we know that people over 50 in general have received the smallpox vaccine, so you'll have protection against uh, monkeypox, the smallpox, monkeypox, camelpox, and cowpox are all very much related. And uh, so you have protection there. So if you're over age 50 and your parents are still alive, ask your mom, as I did, did you have smallpox? I asked my mom and she said for sure I did. And so I know I have protection against smallpox. I wouldn't worry at all about seeing or examining a patient. In fact, I'd like to see a case to really know that it's real. And uh, uh, for those of you under age 50, no special precautions are needed. And uh, if you did come down with a case, you'd want to start on TPOX right away. So you have your doctor contact the CDC you get the TPOX shipped out to you. There is a vaccine, it's called the Giniose vaccine for smallpox and for monkeypox. It's been available since 2018. It's a live attenuated double-stranded virus DNA vaccine. It's never been proven to prevent a case of smallpox or monkeypox. And it's only been shown to raise antibodies against it. And uh, so we, we don't know if it's uh, proven or not. We know in, in a paper um, published by uh, Kernan and colleagues that the Genios vaccine has been associated with myocarditis, uh, as well as actually the vaccinia vaccine. A lot of people don't know this, but the original vaccinia vaccine for smallpox also had rare cases of myocarditis. So it's interesting that right now the vaccines of, of interest are the COVID-19 vaccines clearly cause myocarditis as well as the monkeypox smallpox vaccines cause myocarditis. And in a review paper that's up on my Twitter feed, I do have a, a summary where there's a table showing which vaccines cause the most myocarditis. COVID-19 vaccines are number one. And, um, and then number two is the... Um, Genios, uh, current uh, monkeypox, smallpox vaccine, and the vaccinia vaccine. Uh, Regarding the vaccinia vaccine, remember vaccinia is cowpox, it's related to smallpox, and so the immunity is shared. That was the old way of giving the smallpox vaccine, which I had, and almost everybody listening over age 50 had. There was a report by Halzel and colleagues in JAMA in 2003, where they gave uh, the vaccinia vaccine, the smallpox vaccine that was retired in 1976, they actually gave it uh, to the military because there was a, uh, a fear that smallpox could be encountered by military and a, and a select number of military. We have about 27 military members in the United States, but they gave it to 230,734 in this report. And there were 18 cases of myocarditis with the vaccinia vaccine. So heart inflammation can clearly happen with vaccinia as well as with the Genios the monkeypox smallpox vaccine. And so be wary of that. The US has purchased 13 million doses of it Uh, I'm not sure if anybody's actually received it. Some have suggested rim vaccination. That is, people in a circle around a monkeypox case should receive it. But since it's not spreading readily at all, and uh, this vaccine is not proven and has risk of myocarditis, I think it's premature to start vaccinating people for monkeypox. I prefer the treatment with the T-pox medicine, which is a cell surface Receptor inhibitor. It looks safe and effective, and patients just need to stay in quarantine until the pustular skin rash lesions have crusted over, and it takes about three weeks to do that. So that's what we know there. So I have a great show for you. Uh, uh, this, uh, you know, this episode. I did bring on to the show two doctors. One is Dr. Michael Baimer who's a uh, a PharmD, so he's a pharmacist and Dr. Uh, Heldon Halassa, who's a medical consultant. He's a doctor from Libya. He doesn't practice medicine in the United States, but he's been a consultant and been very interested in novel approaches for COVID-19. So it's a bit heavy of an interview. Dr. Halassa cannot help himself in terms of uh, diving deep into the pathophysiology about how uh, various drugs and mechanisms work at the cellular level. But we discuss... Methylene blue, which is a very interesting substance. Methylene blue is one of the older uh, medicines, if you will, in the pharmacopoeia. We use it to treat emergency cyanide exposure. Uh, It shifts uh, oxygen in and out of red blood cells in a particular way. And then we also use it in acutely sick patients in the hospital after cardiac transplant for something called cardioplegia, where there's no vasoreactivity of blood, blood vessels, and we're having trouble having patients uh, get their hemodynamic status back. Well, what's been discovered with methylene blue, it's very interesting, is that when uh, the body receives it, and then it receives uh, um, uh, basically infrared light, it's a strongly- Uh, virucidal against SARS-CoV-2. It actually kills the virus. So it's a very interesting approach that if you could coat cells with it and then zap it with this infrared light, you literally could just uh, sterilize uh, various cavities, the nose and the mouth. And so when I went down to the Bahamas a few months ago and I featured the Optimist group, if you remember this on the McCullough Report, I had a dinner party I went to by... uh, by famed Olympian, Andy Knowles. Uh, Andy Knowles is a famous Olympic swimmer and coach. We're at his house and I met this wonderful doctor. She's a dermatologist, Dr. Hepburn. And Dr. Hepburn actually gave me one of these infrared emitters that you literally would put in your mouth. And the idea is you'd, you'd rinse your mouth uh, with methylene blue. You'd coat the cells and then put the infrared transmitter in there and then go ahead and zap the virus in the mouth. You'd have to do a spray up in the nose but there is enough infrared light that would go right in from the mouth into the nose. It is a very innovative technique. And the reason why I brought him on the show is I wanted to show you innovation. Uh, None of this is close to conventional medical practice because it's not been subject to, to randomized trials in humans to show if it really does anything in terms of improving clinical outcomes. Dr. Halassa mentioned the use of uh, methylene blue to pretreat treat red blood cells or, or treat donated uh, plasma more appropriately uh, to, in a sense, cleanse it of SARS-CoV-2 and then use it in convalescent plasma. And this was done in a clinical trial. Uh, the rates of the primary endpoint were the same in those inpatients who received the convalescent plasma treated with methylene blue versus placebo. But uh, a fair point is that it did get to the level of study in COVID-19, and so we have those data uh, to consider. So I hope you enjoy the um, back end of the McCullough Report. And, um, and we'd like to bring you innovation on the show and show you that you know doctors are out there thinking, trying to solve this problem. Since SARS-CoV-2 is not going away, the vaccines have not uh, worked to close the pandemic and we still have cases emerging. So let's get real, let's get loud on America Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report. Are you coming down with a cold? You know what I'm talking about. That kind of mild viral feeling, you have a sore throat, maybe just feel a little off. Now's the time to reach for Cofix RX. Cofix RX is povidone iodine, slightly higher concentration that we use with nasal washes, 1.5%. It's in a specialized solution with uh, other important ingredients, including Cartagenae and uh, grapefruit extract. But when you spray it up in the nose, it forms a defense shield and actually works to kill various viruses in the nose, prevent additional rebreathing of the virus, and starts to begin the process that the body can begin to handle the virus with its own immune system without viral replication taking over your nose and your mouth. That's exactly what happens with SARS CoV 2. So reach for a Cofix RX. You can do. Uh, sprays in each nostril several times a day to defend against a viral infection and start on the incipient treatment of an infection to reduce the intensity and duration of symptoms. Go to America Out Loud, our website, go on the banner bar, and then click on Cofix RX and, and, and type in the promo code Out Loud to receive a discount on your purchase. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is a McCullough Report.
1: While many things we hear are lies, we know one thing is true. Viruses exist and people get sick. Look, there's no guaranteed way to keep from getting sick, but there is a way to reduce your chances. RX, the original povidone iodine-based antiviral nasal spray that you hear Dr. McCullough talking about, provides an additional invisible layer of protection from colds, flu, coronaviruses, and more. Click the banner ad on americaoutloud.com and use promo code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Stay protected with Co-fix RX.
0: I want to put in a big word for healthy cell supplements. The GI tract is not functioning normally in long COVID syndrome. I'm convinced of it. There are multiple studies. We need a much better absorbed set of nutraceutical and vitamin products for long COVID syndrome, and that's healthy cell. They have an entire line that's safe and effective, uh, can help people through the long COVID syndrome. I found the best way to use Healthy Cell products is use them every day, not on and off, on and off. Take them every day consistently. The Immune Super Boost, Focus and Memory, and the REM Sleep Supplement all have powerful effects in long COVID syndrome. Go to HealthyCell.com and in the promo code, type in out loud for 20% off your first order. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. It's a great pleasure to bring to the microphone two experts uh, in COVID-19 care and in the future, I believe, of uh, clinical pharmacotherapeutics. And our first guest is Dr. Michael Baimer. Dr. Beamer uh, received his undergraduate degree at Purdue University and then his degree in pharmacy. He received a PharmD degree, which is a very rigorous degree from Purdue University, the Boilermakers in the Big Ten. And he has developed expertise as a compounding pharmacist and really an expert in compounding pharmacies overall. And our second guest is Dr. Uh, Salahadine Halasa. And he received his undergraduate and medical degree in Tripoli, Libya, uh, did additional training there and then came to the United States. He did research training at Baylor College of Medicine. And now he's working as a consultant to so many doctors who are organizing in a new approach to healthcare uh, emerging from the COVID-19 pandemic. And we're gonna have a discussion regarding novel therapeutics. Uh, Dr. Halesa's has developed uh, an expertise uh, in the use of a, a vasoactive uh, substance called methylene blue. And we're going to hear about compounding pharmacies overall and a path forward. Dr. Bamer, Dr. Halesa, welcome to the McCullough Report.
1: Thank you for having us. It's a pleasure to be here with you and your audience.
0: Thank you for having me too. Great. Well, I've had a chance to join some of your Monday evening jam sessions on the emerging science, not only treating COVID-19, but long COVID and then vaccine injury syndromes. And so much of this really depends uh, and relies upon the innovation of compounding pharmacy. So I'll start with you, Dr. Bamer. What is a compounding pharmacy and, and, and what, what do Americans need to know about compounding pharmacies compared to the retail chain, big boys like uh, Walgreens and CVS?
1: well thank you that's a great question it's a good place to start um compounding pharmacies uh, are are uh, differ from a regular pharmacy in that we have additional training and that we're allowed uh, and able to make uh medications from scratch so to speak from the bulk uh, drug substances so uh, we are able to uh, it's imagine uh if a regular pharmacy is just simply reselling products that they buy from a pharmaceutical manufacturer Whereas a compounding pharmacy is able to actually make the products themselves for uh, an individual patient even – Uh, for a specific order. So the great thing about that is that when we have something like a pandemic or a problem, or there's a large number or really any number of patients uh, and doctors who cannot find an off-the-shelf treatment that works for the condition that they have, uh, then they need a place like a compounding pharmacy to go to or something can be custom-made that suits uh, the the conditions that they have. So
0: that's the primary difference. And do compounding pharmacies do they carry uh, substances or dispense substances, let's say for oral use, that are not FDA approved? Yeah. And as a matter of fact,
1: we work with pretty much all the drugs that we work with, the bulk substances, they are the FDA approved, they have an FDA approved product that contains them. So they're a component, uh, whether it's a main component or a Um, uh, You know, uh, an ancillary component, but every drug that we're able to compound with is basically available as some type of FDA approved product. So we're repurposing the drugs really, um, or or, uh, using them for an off label uh, purpose. Uh, that has good medical evidence and science behind it, but there's not a sufficient number of patients, maybe uh, that within need of that to develop a uh, uh, entire um, pharmaceutical product for it. You know, um, there's many illnesses that are unique to an individual, or uh, and the medication needs to be unique to that individual. So there's just simply not enough "quote unquote" uh, business to to make a giant, uh, you know, billions of dollars product. So, or it may uh,
0: be it may be that a pharmaceutical company has just not opted to, to try to get that advertising claim on a label. A lot of people don't know this, but a yeah. lot of drugs that we're using in cardiology in my field that are in the guidelines, they're actually not FDA approved for that indication because the pharmaceutical company never never sought to get that advertising label. So that's label, very true. Yeah, Mike, the label is just whatever the original advertising intent was of the company. Uh, The important part of, quote, the label is the important safety information. And we all agree that safety uh, is is number one for medicinal products. And the FDA, in a 2018 public statement on their website, I show this in a lot of my public presentations, say doctors should be using drugs off-label when they are fulfilling an unmet need. And that's really what we've been doing in COVID-19 from the very beginning.
1: Absolutely well put, and that's kind of what compounding pharmacies are here to do. Um, you know, when there's a, uh, a where there is an unmet need uh, for we are here to do that.
0: Yep. Let's bring in Dr. Halesa. Dr. Halesa, you've been an innovator, and I think uh, been uh, really stimulating the doctors to uh, be innovative in Covid nineteen. Uh, and there have been a whole variety of things tried uh, with the lack of research funding for original therapeutics in COVID-19 and uh, this strong bias against uh, early treatment in order to promote the vaccines. Most of what doctors have done has been either supported by very limited observational studies, sometimes just pathophysiologic rationale and, and always a very uh, small, underpowered and inconclusive randomized trials. But you've taken an interest in methylene blue. Can you explain to our, explain to our lay public what methylene blue is?
2: Well, methylene blue has been used before as uh, urinary tract antiseptic. So it's being used for treating UTI infection. And uh, also it's been FDA approved for uh, managing methemoglobinemia. And it's been used by WHO for treating malaria. So it has multiple applications there. And the reason I brought the methadone blue on the surface of COVID-19 because it's being used to sterilize sterilize the convalescent blood or plasma that's coming from COVID patients where they they extract those antibodies that we call convalescent plasma. But in order to uh, give it to another patient, they need to make sure that this is completely sterilized from all bacterial or viral infection. So they use metal blue, so it's, it's called, this company is called Griffel companies, a Spain company. They have a headquarters or branches in the United States and it's an FDA process where they use metal blue photodynamic therapy as a way to sterilize those convalescent blood or plasma uh, from any kind of infections, including COVID viruses, but also HIV and anything that's been uh, trapped or escaped uh, into those plasma to making sure that the receiver will be completely uh, germ-free uh, plasma products.
0: Now, now is, it, um, so is, it, used, is it used in blood banking? Is it used to sterilize yes. blood and blood banking? And is it approved? Uh-huh. Even
2: after the screening of the lab, sometimes uh, those viruses will be uh, uh, detected in those blood, and they wanna make sure that they are completely sterilized. So they, how they use it, they use, they use the lab to make sure those blood are free from germs Uh, from the proto-donors, but that's not enough to ensure that they uh, pass those blood through meth blue photodynamic therapy to ensure the complete sterilization. And this process will not affect the clotting factors or the blood products. And so it's very compatible with the biological products of the blood uh, as a process of a way to uh, uh, sterilize the blood from all the bugs and the germs and the viruses.
0: But is it used as a standard in blood banking?
2: yes um in france and europe um yes um i don't know in, in the united states but i know it's a it's a standard process of uh producing convalescent uh, plasma from COVID patients that's the donors
0: oh i see so it was used in the development of um convalescent plasma in the treatment right. of COVID. i see i see right. so so um, they have to
2: go through this process. It, the company is called Griffo, uh, Grifol, G I G R I F O L.
0: Grifol. Okay. That's an yeah.
2: FDA approved approved yeah. uh, process. E Grifol. Grifol.
1: Yeah, I, I can show you the process, Dr. McCullough. But essentially, what it is is they can take a bag of plasma that's been donated. And then they can use either, uh, uh, they can use a photo, it's a light therapy, where they basically uh, take a bag, like a 50 or 100 cc bag of plasma, they uh, put a small amount of methylene blue in it, and then they place it in the device that comes from the company. And this shines the light through the plasma, and, uh, and uh, you know, inactivates viruses and bacteria using photodynamic therapy. And activate but, them. And activate yeah. them, not activate them, yeah. In and, and the nice part of it is that, they, that it leaves the other plasma uh, contents intact so it doesn't damage the protein. That's how we thought of the idea to do uh, oral photodynamic therapy um, because COVID was a respiratory transmitted disease. And uh, we expanded from that uh, into a lot more uh, uh, evidence-based uh, and interesting work with methylene blue uh, that are not related to photodynamic therapy. But that is how we originally came upon the idea.
0: Okay, so methylene blue used to sterilize blood for convalescent plasma to treat acute COVID. The convalescent plasma ultimately faded away as a treatment in the United States, uh, um, I think largely because of the use of, um, you know, produced monoclonal antibodies, fully humanized produced monoclonal antibodies, and that the, the supportive data uh, for the hospital wasn't as strong as, as we'd like to see. And I've used methylene blue intravenously in a patient with a cyanide uh, toxicity, for instance, when we're trying to treat what's called methemoglobinemia. But what you guys are talking about is using methylene blue uh, orally, right? Uh, So tell me about the oral use of methylene blue. Where has it been used before orally? and, And how do you get any guideposts in terms of dosing?
2: Well, they use it before for UTI infection, for sure. Um, they use it also for malaria. And I think they use also IV for malaria as well. Uh, but I know for the fact for UTI infection, they use it as capsules. Um, and there's a brand for that. Um, and it's very effective, you know, especially for uh, patients who has bacteria-resistant uh, anti- antibiotics, resistant to bacteria or bacteria-resistant antibiotics, they are very effective in, in trying to uh, um, overcome the, the resistance and, uh, and manage those patients. We have experience with patients using methylene blue for UTI for hard to treat UTI.
0: Okay. So tell me about uh, this idea of using methylene blue in, um, in uh, COVID 19.
2: Right. So let's go back to the pathophysiology of, of COVID 19. And we need to know exactly what's going on there. What is the uh, pathophysiology behind COVID-19? And COVID-19 is actually, um, we, we will find out, it's a TH17 dominant immune disease, where you will have overactive TH17 and interleukin 6 overproduction. And that leads to the whole pathology of COVID-19. It leads to neutrophilia and neutrophilic uh, vasculitis, neutrophilia- pneumonia, and then interneucin-6 activates the platelets and leads to all the clotting effect, in addition to neutrophilic vasculites which also stimulate the clotting, causing all the stroke and all the complication of uh, coagulation. Um, and and so knowing that it's a TH17 dominant immune disease, uh, we know that the fact that metlam blue do inhibit the TH17 signaling, and that's how one of way of managing um, um, uh, COVID pathophysiology or COVID disease as an acute condition. Uh, but also blue blocks the spike uh, protein, same like the uh, ivermectin and preventing it from attaching to the ACE receptor, ACE2 receptor. And we know that preventing from attaching to ACE2 receptor will prevent the whole process of um, hijacking the, um, the renin angiotensin system. And we know when you hijack the renin-angiotensin system and you block the ACE2, it would lead to overactivation of the inflammatory arm of the renin-angiotensin system, which is mediated by angiotensin 2 type 1 receptors, which leads eventually to uh, overproduction of interleukin 6 and polarization of the immune system to Th17, and leads to all this neutrophilic pneumonia and neutrophilic vasculitis and all the complications that comes beyond that. So. That's one of the mechanisms of action is to block those TH-17 signaling, uh, starting from blocking the spike protein all the way down to blocking the signaling of the TH-17, immune polarization. Uh, Two, also that when you have too much of inflammation, you have oxidative stress, you will also have mitochondria dysfunction and blockage of the electron transport chain. So you have the methylene blue can help to bypass the blockage of the mitochondria, um, and uh, it helps to reduce the ferric to ferrous and um, it works like a QQ10 helps to pass or bypass any blockage in the electron transport chain and activate the mitochondria but also we know that oxidative stress generated from COVID-19 is is also causing some changes in the hemoglobin and in the iron turning it from um, fer- ferrous to ferric where the, the blood will not be carrying oxygen effectively so um, that's where the methylum blue has a rule in um, uh, reducing the ferrous into ferric and help to increase the um, carrying uh, oxygen carrying capacity of the of the blood. The other thing that methylam blue, I uh, think uh, has, hang on. Meth- remember,
0: remember, this is a our audience is just average lay people, so make sure you, you try to make your answers understandable to them.
2: <laughs> okay, I will make the last uh, uh, you know, yeah. and make it simple. Ivermectin does not penetrate the brain, so if you have those viruses in the brain, infecting um, uh, central uh, parts of the of the brain, especially the one that controls the respiratory system, the breathing, um, really you cannot do much in ivermectin. But you can do it with methylene blue because methylene blue passes the blood-brain brain barrier and it helps to um, uh, neutralize those viruses directly by blocking the uh, the, the spike protein and by blocking all the inflammatory process in, in the central nervous system on the brain. Um, so those are the uh, mechanism of action and some of pathophysiology of COVID-19. But if you have any other questions, I'm willing to answer.
0: Yeah. So I was able to find the product uh, that's available, I guess, at the major pharmacies. It's called Eurogesic Blue, and it's a combination of hycosamine methenamine and methylene blue and sodium biphosphate. And it's in a drug class of urinary antispasmodics. It's also uh, an anti-infective. So, uh, you know, it falls into the category of, uh, it sounds like the pathophysiology, you know, certainly could be applied against COVID-19. What type of clinical data uh, has come out now on methylene blue specifically in COVID-19?
2: We have many publications. If you go to PubMed and you click on Metlin Blue, you will see thousands of publications related to Metlin blue as an antiviral, antibacterial, antifungal. So it has a broad spectrum uh, antibiotic effect, and especially when you combine it with red lights and it becomes photodynamic therapy. Uh, so we have thousands of publications for that, um, some of them also for COVID-19 specifically. We have many many publications that show methylene blue is very effective in managing COVID uh, disease, COVID COVID disease or COVID, and um, you know we can share those articles for you to see or to to um, just you know evaluate them.
0: Well, I'm, I'm looking um, at it right PubMed. now Pub, PubMed and uh, methylene blue and COVID nineteen. It's re- retrieved sixty eight results. So, um, Dr. Baeumer, can you can you summarize uh, the clinical literature about yeah. methylene blue and COVID?
1: Yeah, let me let me give you a little bit more insight uh, and clarity there. One one thing that's important to note about methylene blue is there's two primary mechanisms of action really that we're looking at. One is as a redox buffer, okay, and then the other one is photodynamic therapy. So, in acute COVID nineteen, when we have viruses building a very high viral load in the oral cavity, in the mouth, the tongue, under the tongue, um, the nasopharyngeal area, the upper sinuses, and especially up into the areas of the crubiform plate where the, where the virus may access uh, the central nervous system. This uh, photodynamic therapy process is something where we can rapidly reduce viral load. And uh, our colleague, Dr. Uh, Juliet Hepburn, has done some very good work and published Uh, a couple of studies, one in Germany, I know I'm aware of um, on oral photodynamic therapy with methylene blue and documenting with PCR testing um, precipitous drops in the viral load very rapidly within one or two or three treatments.
0: Can you you just explain physically how this is done? So I have Ah. a patient, so I have a patient and just explain physically what happens. It's very
1: simple when, when, so if you are walking, whether you have your mask on or not, and you breathe uh, in air that contains the COVID virus, there are tiny droplets of water that are aerosolized. They're so small, you can't see them. They're like smoke particles or something. And you breathe this in and, it, and then it ends up landing somewhere on your tongue or, or in your uh, nasal cavity somewhere. And so then it begins to infect your body. So now what we want to do is we want to reduce that. And so there's various things that you can use to, to, you know, inactivate the virus. One being, we've talked about povidone iodine, but that kind of thing doesn't reach inside the cells that are already infected and inactivate the virus there. So what you do essentially to perform photodynamic therapy is you uh, take a mouthwash, rinse your mouth, and your mouth will be dyed a blue color from the methylene blue. And so the methylene blue is taken up into the uh, affected or infected tissues or inflamed tissues uh, selectively. It targets them because the infected cells have high oxidative stress, which, which uh, chemically or, or electrochemically attracts the methylene blue. So the methylene blue, you will see it, it will um, concentrate in specific areas where you apply it. And then what you do is after uh, that the, uh, after you pre-treat uh, the area for, uh, with, the, with the photosensitizer with it, which is methylene blue. Then you basically use a light device. It's sort of like a football mouthpiece with a special type of light that it emits, a bright light. And that process actually ends up killing off the infected cells. Uh, it also kills off free viruses. Um, so that's a way of rapidly reducing the viral load with a natural process that's easy to do, that's not you know, ingesting a drug that's harmful to your patient. In fact, to do photodynamic therapy, you don't even need to ingest it. You can you know, just coat the mouth and spit it out so you don't actually ingest the drug. But, but
0: okay. Mike, how does that work mm-hmm. up in the nose, up in the nasal cavity?
1: Now, that's a good question. You also, if you want to use the nasal cavity, you, you would need to use a nasal spray to get that. So we have a nasal spray that's available, and we also have an oral rinse that's available. Either one can be administered, uh, both or either one. And then the light therapy, believe it or not, is powerful enough to reach uh, through up into the sinuses from the mouth. Uh, we also do have light therapy that you can do directly into the nose. That's harder uh, to come by and costs more. Uh, but uh, we found that just the uh, mouth device uh, works very, very well to reduce viral load.
0: So that's what Dr. Hepburn showed me when I visited her in Bahamas. I was just yes. trying, to, trying to get you to explain this. So I'm looking at a paper by Lobo and colleagues. Uh, it was published this year and the title of it is Photodynamic Disinfection of SARS-CoV-2 Clinical Samples Using Methylene Blue Formulation. And they basically, basically distra- describe the methods you just gave in vivo. It's an in vitro study but it was 99% effective in yeah. eliminating the virus.
1: Yeah, and there's a lot of clinical trials going on. Uh, there's one in Mexico or two in Mexico that I'm aware of. Um, they've tried to do this in the US, but you know it's very difficult and you have this long hill to climb. And that's why we ended up in the compounding pharmacy, to be honest, because um, the pandemic would have been long over uh, by the time uh, we we were able to get any data published. And uh, really, that's kind of what happened to this therapy and why it it, it wasn't something that was uh, largely known about because we weren't really able to get the word out about it. Mm -hmm. This is a very effective treatment. We had this before the pandemic.
2: Yeah, well, let me add something very critical here, which is that if you add virus uh, in your PubMed plus COVID, you will see uh, virus plus Metland Blue. You will see there's around 465 articles about using methylene blue to manage uh, viral infections. And so it's not just for COVID, it's for herpes simplex, for Zach virus, for many other viral Epstein. Diseases, also viruses. Epstein Barr, also. Epstein Barr viruses. And also, we'll cover many, many bacteria, fungal infections. If you write and you start counting those publications, there are many and thousands uh, of, of them. Um, so I would like you to look at the Metland blue number well, of publication of metal and blue and virus and bacteria and fungus.
0: Right. And so, you know, it seems like almost every patient we check for Epstein-Barr virus reactivation syndrome post-COVID and now post the vaccines, we're finding it. So tell me, if I have a patient who has systemic viral activation syndrome, let's say EBV, long covid Uh, Based on the base of knowledge, Dr. Halesa out there, what would be a typical oral dose that one would empirically try?
2: I I like to start with 10 milligram just to see the tolerance of the patients and acceptance. And then I can go all the way up to 50 milligram. I mean, the pharmaceutical dose, uh, it's 0.5 milligram per kg to two milligram per kg. Um, But I will just start from 10 to 50 uh, milligram—that's the maximum—and then I will uh, put the patients, or recommend putting the patients in uh, total red or infrared uh, red light therapy. Those beds, you know, those have red light, so you can radiate and activate all the metal, metal and blue and the whole entire body uh, for an activation of uh, epstein viruses uh, in the entire body with with whole-body radiation with red light along with methylene blue. That's called photodynamic therapy. But even without light, the methylene blue does have antiviral effect. It will maximize using uh, red light.
0: Well, uh, how important is the infrared light for systemic use? Let's say for a UTI uh, or for um, Epstein-Barr virus reactivation syndrome where patients it just have general light.
2: The, yeah, the, the, the light enhance the uh, antiviral effect and the light spectrum is 650, 660. Those are the light that absorbs the methylene blue and generates free radicals, and that will help to destroy those viruses. But it has an intrinsic effect as well. Uh, even by itself, it kills the viruses, but it adds more efficacy if you add um, the light therapy, which is the red light, the 660 or 650. I mean, I think it, that's it probably- the that,
0: Right, that's the rate limiting step. People aren't gonna have Knowledge of access to that, and it's going to be challenging as we deal with this deluge of post-COVID and vaccine injury patients. Um, uh, right,
2: but just but- methylene blue itself will help to inactivate the virus, but also mm-hmm. the methylene blue will help the, all the inflammatory process. So it has, yeah. An let, me, and antiviral. let me elaborate on that. Um, with, with
1: regard to, you know, we, we spoke briefly about there being two important mechanisms of action with, with, with methylene blue, the first being photodynamic therapy. And, and let me finish commenting on that really quickly. Um, you, you know, the ideal way to do it, for example, if we were doing photodynamic therapy, when, when you mentioned Epstein-Barr virus rea- uh, or, or something like Lyme disease or a chronic systemic infection, then we do want to use maybe the bed and uh, you know, uh, oral methylene blue and that kind of stuff, but you can treat just a simple acute viral infection of uh, with photodynamic therapy using the oral uh, uh, LED 660 device um, and do very well. And you can also do systemic therapy with it because remember, there's a substantial blood supply underneath the tongue. And Dr. Hepburn did a lot of work on this. And as a dermatologist, she recognized that um, the light penetrates the tongue very, very well because there's no pigment uh, on the underside of the tongue. And if you look at the underside of your tongue, you'll see there's lots of blood vessels that are literally exposed. There's a very vulnerable area uh, of the body where your blood supply uh, is, uh, a large blood supply uh, is uh, right there uh, that you can access and touch it almost. And um, so if we allow the light to travel into those blood vessels, every 10 minutes to 12 minutes, all of the blood in the body circulates past that point. And so we can do systemic treatment with oral photodynamic therapy. But as Dr. Halasa states, for more systemic and more serious deep-seated tissue infections like Lyme or possibly Epstein-Barr reactivation, it would be more favorable to do a full-body thing, but, you know, it can be done without. Um, so that's one mechanism of action. The second mechanism of action in COVID-19 that methylene blue is really important is inflammatory signaling. Um, and as we know, interleukin-6 and um, NF-kappa-B activation um, and STAT-3 uh, activation in, uh, are, are all part of the inflammatory process in methylene blue or in, in part of the inflammatory process. And they're somewhat controlled by mitochondrial function. So as, as we improve mitochondrial function in the long COVID patient or the acutely ill COVID patient, we're protecting the body from damage and further inflammatory effects that are signaled by that oxidative stress. So to simplify it, the little battery supply or the power supply in each one of your cells of your body, when your body's under intense inflammation, it doesn't function properly and you become lethargic and you don't have a lot of energy and your body's functioning without its normal power supply. And methylene blue will help to restore that power supply. There's other things we can do as well to do that, but that's one of the main purposes of it. And when we give a steroid burst, that's one thing we're doing. We're reducing the chronic inflammatory load that is in in the end suppressing mitochondrial function.
0: Well, you know, the, the thing is, I wanted to get to some practical understanding. I visited Dr. Hepburn, uh, she actually gave me one of these devices, which I think is the oral infrared transmitter. Yeah. Um, it, so practically, if you were to treat uh, an acute patient with COVID, uh, would you actually give them one of these transmitters, or how how would they yep. get the the photodynamic therapy of it? Because that's a great yeah. COVID. That's a great
1: question. So what you do is, uh, and and we are the we are a distributor for that product from uh, Dr. Hepburn, and uh, so those devices are available in the U.S. Um, they cost about hundred dollars. They're very affordable, and um, uh, uh, methylene blue is is not an expensive uh, chemical to have your compounding pharmacy make. Um, and uh, you can get it in oral mouthwash, and you know, combining the mouthwash with the oral uh, light gives you a very powerful tool, really, for almost any respiratory transmitted virus, bacteria, or fungal infection. Uh, it, it's a it's a if you look at the literature. Uh, it, it's uh, innate, inactivates all of those types of, of respiratory pathogens, you know, that are orally transmitted.
0: Okay. That's, that's quite interesting. So, uh, you know, one of the reasons why we wanted to have this conversation, Dr. Halasa is that it almost seems like uh, COVID-19 has been the ultimate stress test for conventional allopathic medicine and allopathic medicine has failed. There are no innovative protocols by any of the medical schools for outpatient treatment. All the inpatient protocols uh, have not evolved. None of the hospitals claim to be a center of excellence. Patients are furious. Uh, They are leaving their conventional doctors and they're looking for alternatives. Uh, What do you see in the future in terms of centers for chronic disease prevention and management? I know you're a consultant working on almost an entire network of such clinics around the country?
2: Yeah, I think there is a gap there in managing chronic disease um, because uh, if you go through all these medical specialties, um, you will see they are focusing, or tunnel vision focusing on certain things, and um, you will not be able to manage the whole uh, condition. Let's say, for example, if a patient has um, Dementia or Alzheimer. You go to a neurologist and the neurologist will give you some drug that will inhibit acetylcholine as trace and increase the acetylcholine. That's the mainstream medicine. But is that enough to manage um, dementia? No. Because dementia is degeneration of neurons. And just increasing the bioavailability and the metabolics and working on the metabolics of the neurons by increasing the acetylcholine is not Enough. You really need to work on decreasing the degeneration of the neurons. And how you can do that is by decreasing the oxidative stress in the free radicals in the brain. And how you can do that is by decreasing the detox, or I'm uh, sorry, by detoxing the body. Yeah, yeah my, but my, the
0: Dr. Halessa, my question was really about the development of these centers across the country and not about the mitochondrial function. I mean, just give us uh, in some final words where you see the whole commercial development of centers for uh, chronic disease prevention and and treatment?
2: Yeah, so what I'm trying to say is that uh, the mainstream medicine failed to manage chronic disease because it required uh, to manage it in different angles and different way and addressing all the pathophysiology and that's not just metabolic but immune and also the redox status. And I think this centers would definitely provide a comprehensive management of chronic disease and um, in all aspects, uh, fixing the immune balance, the redox, the metabolic. And I think we can do better than the mainstream medicine uh, using our protocols and technology. And we're trying to build a center in its state and um, that's what's happening also to John Hopkins. They have departments for chronic disease prevention management and also to Michigan University. So they start, there is starts some uh, departments of this new medical specialties, which will take the disease or manage the disease uh, in many different angles instead state of tunnel vision in one aspect of the pathophysiology of the disease.
0: Okay, terrific. That was a good summary, Dr. Bamer. any final words for the McCullough Report audience? Well, what I would say is that,
1: uh, yes, I would say the most important thing to know is that there are many different ways to treat uh, acute COVID-19 and also the long-term COVID-19 uh, syndromes that we're seeing. And that, that there are options out there and that compounding pharmacies are available to work with your physician or with innovative doctors like you, yourself, Dr. McCullough, or Dr. Halasa, we're here to support you. And there is a network of, of, of pharmacies that will be happy to do that. You know, um, that would be my, what I would say. Now the, with regard to chronic prevention of disease uh, centers, the, what I would say that that's about is, uh, you know, that's focusing on, uh, on the root cause of the disease and addressing that, rather than uh, addressing, you know, what we uh, a tool that we're given. So, um, you know, the Chronic Disease Prevention and Management Center's fellowship focuses on diagnostic and therapeutic protocols to prevent and manage chronic diseases across all medical specialties. That's one thing we've really noticed is that everybody sees a specialist for every condition, but they're not seeing a healthcare coach that's helping them with the basics of improving their uh, uh, overall health. Uh, that impacts all the chronic diseases that they have. So uh, that's the area that we're working with. um, And it's generally associated with uh, testing and evaluating and normalizing the patient's redox potential, metabolic systems and immune systems. So those three things, redox, metabolic and immune systems, uh, control most chronic diseases that we have. So we wanna work in that area and provide new um, uh, 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 new, new therapies in those areas.
0: Well, terrific. That was a great summary, uh, Dr. Halesa, Dr. Bamer. Thank you so much for joining us on the McCullough Report. We thank you thank for us. Let's thank get real. Up. Let's get loud on America. Out loud Talk Radio. This is a McCullough Report.